0: Welcome everybody to another episode of the CPA Advisory Show. My name is Chris and I'm here along with my co-host, Jeremy Wells. Jeremy, how are you doing today? I am doing well, Chris. How about yourself? Awesome. Love that. Best day ever, which I guess is my tagline now. <laughs> uh, so today, what we're going to talk about is we both recently had an experience with an AICPA PCPS small firm group. Uh, we're both in separate groups, so we're going to talk about our experiences there because we both just had our first meeting, and then we're going to talk about the carbon practice excellence report which just came out which is super fascinating and then how we're planning for 2023 so jeremy i understand that you were in new york for a few days how'd that go what were your takeaways how'd you like the meeting
1: yeah it was good first of all um so this was actually all the whole concept of these small groups was relatively new to me up until a few months ago so i think for those of who don't know what we're talking about. Um, Let's break this down a little bit. So of course, there's the American Institute of uh, CPAs that we you know, a lot of us as CPAs belong to. Um, And I think it's a fair statement that for the most part, the AICPA is going to represent the interests of big firms, right? You know, the the big four, maybe top 100, but um, it's primarily going to be driven by what the big four firms uh, are really interested in, but Uh, The AICPA also has a division within it called the Private Companies Practice Section, the PCPS, and that is more geared toward the small firms. Um, And so this is uh, where you've got a lot of resources for smaller firm owners and uh, something, like I said, that I learned a few months ago, they actually organize these small groups of small firm owners. And so instead of feeling like now you're just one know, membership number within this massive uh, AICPA, you actually have the opportunity to join and be part of these uh, flexible, smaller groups of, um, I don't know, I'm guessing the average group is maybe 10, a dozen, 15 at most probably is what it feels like based on, um, you know, the the other people that I've talked to that are in one um, and then my own. And so I think we are, uh, I am in uh, small group six uh, so it gives you a rough <laughs> idea of, of how, and, and, and I feel like we're, we're the newest one, um, probably since we just formed a few months ago. Um, so that gives you a rough idea of how many of these there are. I think there are a couple of topical ones, um, as well. Uh, Interesting. That, yeah, but, uh, they, they broke it down, um, at my meeting, but, um, so yeah, I, I joined this, uh, a, a mutual, uh, connection of ours, uh, Sandy Johns let me, uh, know, Uh, that she was forming a new group, I don't know, maybe four or five, six months ago, and uh, told her I was interested. So joined PCPS, which made it to where I could join uh, this group. And then a few weeks ago in New York City, we had our uh, first ever meetup. And yeah, it was was pretty cool. We met at the AICPA's offices uh, right there uh, near Times Square, a couple blocks away from Times Square. So uh, if you are going to... New York at uh you know some point in the near future and you're an AICPA member maybe stop by there it's kind of impressive it's a pretty big office tower and up up pretty high so uh you've got some good views of Manhattan uh That's and where all Central the dudes Park and all that yeah yeah exactly it's exactly what i said when i walked in when i walked in and saw the view uh out of the offices i looked around at everybody around me and said this is where the dudes are going yeah um, got it yep <laughs> good to know right uh yeah good anyway, to know but anyway, no, it was a great group. So uh, we we had one full day. Uh, I think everybody got in town the uh, the afternoon before, and then we had one full day, and then ha- the first half of the second day. And we broke that up into some different topics uh, you know, and sort of overarching uh, topics, and a few of us. Uh, either led discussion or presented, we had some leeway and how we wanted to do that. Uh, and so I headed up the uh, tax uh, discussion and we talked about some tax best practices and thinking about how we can resolve some of the overarching issues that are affecting small firms in terms of tax, like notices and an unresponsive IRS and things like that. So yeah, overall it was good though. Um, And, you know, we had a couple of AICPA people there that talked to us, uh, but, you know, it was free of the typical sort of big AICPA conference kind of stuff. There were no vendors there. There was nobody trying to sell us on either their software or on a membership or a subscription to anything. None of that, right? It was just a chance for uh, what ended up being, I think, 13 or 14 of us uh, to just sit down and in a safe space, discuss Uh, The issues that we're facing as firm owners, and offer some suggestions and ideas of of how to deal with them.
0: Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I I had a similar experience. I think we had nine in person, and our groups roughly around a dozen. We met in Boston. I had never been to Boston. Uh, Very cool, really cool city. Which that was so that was a great experience in and of itself. Uh, So we got in on Sunday afternoon, most of us, and then we met. Well, we did the whole dinner thing, obviously. Then we met Monday, and then half a day Tuesday. Same type of format, really. But you know, my 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 takeaways, and this isn't news to anybody. Number one, but number one, everybody's struggling with tax, staff. Maybe they just don't exist. That's not news, <laughs> but. it's... You know it's one of those things it's almost like therapy to hear other people other people are struggling with that specific issue as well.
1: We need our uh, uh, bitch and stitch uh sessions a hundred
0: percent yeah it can be you know it can be lonely and it can be it can be difficult to be a firm runner you just want to know that you're not alone so um that's a good that's a good thing. But you know my wife texted me probably sometime on Monday. She's like, hey how's it going? You know I was like this is the group that I needed like three years ago um just to kind of help you know the things that firm owners are dealing with which is a very wide-ranging topic case really um, so i thought it was totally worthwhile i i think the overarching advice that i would give to any other firm firm owners that are out there is consider joining a group like this you know find your find your community get together every once in a while talk about the issues that are impacting your firm it'll be helpful for sure you can you can get best practices from other firm owners much more effectively, I think, in that kind of a setting than you can at a huge conference where you're stuck with, you know, a 50-minute session and that's really all you're getting on that particular topic Um, or certainly just self-study CPE or or things like that. Um, I think that the, the small firm groups are a totally worthwhile exercise for sure. So with that...
1: yeah. Yeah, I I just want to say you bring up a great point because I
0: went uh, fully independent
1: with my firm at the end of 2019. And then about three months later, uh, COVID hit. Right. And so, um, you know, I, I already had my book of business, but I hadn't really been building a firm uh, yet. And so I, I launched into building a firm right when COVID hit. And so, for the first two, two and a half years of that process, it, was, it, was, it could get really isolating. And yeah, there's some online communities and online uh, discussion groups and that kind of thing. But, um, you know, as we all know, after a couple of years of COVID, even that starts to run its course of, of truly being helpful. And at some point, you do need some in person. Uh, get together. So I don't know about your group, but our group is planning uh, two meetings, two in-person meetings a year, every spring and every fall, uh, yeah, right, at, right after the end of tax season, uh, both uh, tax seasons, both the spring and fall. Uh, tax seasons and then we're filling in the rest of the year with uh, monthly video calls so that we can stay in touch and and keep up on uh, whatever issues are we're dealing with between uh, those meetups but really looking forward to uh, getting to know this group even better and and really uh, digging in with them
0: yeah yeah we're we're the same And and you bring up an interesting point about the COVID thing I was actually thinking about this yesterday when I started my firm well I started it as a side hustle a long time ago we do not to getting into that but i really went full time with it middle of 2018 and it was always fully virtual and late 2018 early 2019 i would get or actually off 2019 then i would get these phone calls like hey when, when can i come drop my stuff off can i come meet with you and the answer is always no like i work from home we do everything digitally work paperless that sort of thing and there was like some pushback and then COVID happened and then that stopped and it was like, mm-hmm. this is the greatest thing ever. I mean, you know what I mean? Uh, not, <laughs> yeah. not, not literally, right. obviously not right. literally, but yeah. from a business perspective, like that conversation went away and it broke down that barrier and it just went away. And it was, it was like, now I've got this whole um, universe of potential tax clients who are not going to give me pushback on that particular issue. right? So that's fine. Um, but that's not an, that was not a normal way of operating then. We went through the whole COVID thing that wasn't, in, that was not normal and it had certain impacts on certainly society, but on our clients. And we're dealing with all of those issues. And now we're kind of in this weird economic time where we're dealing with all of those issues. And it gets really easy to just kind of think, well, you know, is this a firm problem? What, you know, what am I doing wrong here? How do I need to address these sorts of things? But then it, When you talk to other firm owners and you realize that everybody's kind of going through the same thing and you're not alone it's it's super helpful and it's super comforting frankly um because it's more of a industry-wide issue and more of a profession-wide issue than it is necessarily a firm issue in a lot of cases and we've just gone through a really weird time certainly like the entirety of my firm ownership and having been out on my own so it's a little bit weird because you don't have that baseline right of while I was in a firm and I was doing it in 2015. And this is the way that, this is the way that went, I didn't really have that baseline just because of the way the timing worked out. So uh, from that perspective, it was super helpful as well. Absolutely. All right. Enough on that pivoting. The carbon practice, Excellence report came out. It is 29 pages of a lot of interesting information based on feedback that they got from apparently a bunch of firms and firm owners. And Jeremy, I'm wondering if you've had a chance to dig into this and if so, what were your takeaways? And it's, you know, in particular, like what are your takeaways having gone through this after having gone through your small firm meetup and how does that kind of either reinforce or impact your thinking?
1: Yeah. Uh, so, a couple things. One, I, I, I'm a carbon user, and I hadn't heard of this until you told me about it uh, just a little while ago. So that that's really interesting, and I I think, uh, well, it's something that we uh, really need more of. Uh, as small firm owners, is not just meeting in person with each other. But once we start meeting with each with each other in person, uh, we are everyone start everyone's full of anecdotes, right? You know, mm-hmm. anecdotes about clients, anecdotes about staff, anecdotes about dealing with IRS, all these different kinds of things. And what we need is actual data and and trends and you know state of the field kind of uh, level of analysis. And it's relatively easier to get at that. The bigger the firms are, and so having sources of data like that for smaller firms is always uh, going to be interesting and going to be appreciated. One of the biggest takeaways for me, and this gets a little bit uh, later in the report, but one of the biggest uh, in one of the, one of the most interesting things to me out of this report was the, the comparison. Across sizes of firms, and so they go all the way from solo to top 100 uh, mm-hmm. in here. And this is this is where uh, you know I always have this internal struggle about. What's the future of my firm? Because right now I'm solo. Uh, you know, I've got a I've got a full time, but outsourced and, and overseas bookkeeper working for me. Um, and I have toyed around with the idea of uh, bringing on staff over the couple years I've been in business, but I've always just managed to keep the the workload. Uh, is, to manageable enough for just myself. Um, And like I say, maybe one or two uh, full-time bookkeepers working for me. But, you know, what you see kind of in in this report kind of bears out what I'm concerned about is that in order to sort of get to the point, to where you can do all the things that the business books tell you, uh, which is, you know, you should build this business that can run itself and you've got this layer of management that makes it to where you can take a day off, you're not the only one running the ship, the, the business can run without you, that kind of stuff. Man, you got to go through a dip, to get there, you've got to go through a dip in profitability. You've got to go through a dip in your own compensation, and mm-hmm. you know, I, I think I think you can probably relate to that since you have some staff uh, a little bit better than I could. But but to me, that just really stood out a little bit later uh, in this report was uh, seeing just some of the numbers comparing across the the sizes of the firms and how long the firms have been in existence. That really jumped out to me.
0: Yeah, that was my biggest takeaway too, actually. And if anybody out there looking at the report or has the report, it's on page 13, where basically it goes through your business tenure and, um, there's, diff- there's different buckets, so it's zero to one, one to two, two to five, five to 10 and then 10 plus. And that graph basically looks like a wave, mm-hmm. right? So there's, yeah. there's an, there's increased excellence from zero to basically two. And then there's this huge trough between two and five. And I'll I'll tell you just flat out. That's where I'm sitting at, (laughs) Right, right. bringing on staff, going through all these changes, moving from the solo practitioner mindset to actually running the business. And that totally makes sense. And that totally resonated with me, especially after having um, sat and talked to a bunch of firm owners for a couple of days. Right. And just, you know, comparing notes and then from five, you know, it gets better from from five to 10, basically, and then, you know, 10 plus, it kind of levels off. And it's interesting how that also, um, coincides with another graph that they have in here on the previous page about, uh, staff or firm size really. So you see an increase from one member, um, to eleven to twenty five and you kind of see a level off and then you, you see a dip beyond beyond fifty staff and it's it's really kind of interesting now my experience hasn't necessarily mirrored that as far as tenure and staff size, um, but that dip in in tenure and it i mean just totally resonates with me for sure
1: yeah absolutely i i, I it's almost uh like the <laughs> you you start knowing enough about running a firm to become dangerous to yourself, right? Like, yeah. you, you go through the first couple of years, and you're just scrambling to get everything done, right? And there there aren't really systems in place yet. There's not really, uh, you know, experienced staff yet. It's just you trying to get stuff done, trying to bring on new clients, trying to keep the clients that you've got. And so in terms of, you know, what they're calling practice excellence, it's really just you, right? And, and so you're you're running the ship you're you're getting better at being an accountant you're getting better at being a client manager you're getting better at being a partner you're getting better at being all these different things that you have to be mm-hmm. as a as a solo or small firm owner um and then you start trying to push beyond that and that's when you rock the boat that's when things start to you know get a little bit less just concrete which is necessary right you know it's almost it's almost like uh, the adolescence of the firm, right? Like you've got to go through that awkward period, but um, expect the awkwardness, right? And, and and expect things to kind of fall apart a little bit, but you almost need to things to fall apart or to break apart a little bit to see what doesn't work so that you can either fix it or focus on the things that really do work. And, and I know that even though, uh, you know, I, I've stuck with just a solo firm, that, that over the last couple of years, right, especially COVID, um, because we went through we went through some growing pains, right? We added a bunch of clients really quickly. And that's when I knew I had to bring on uh, some bookkeepers. That's when I knew I needed to get serious about the kinds of services that I wanted to offer, the kinds of clients I wanted to work with. And so there were some clients that came on that were not good fit. Um, There were some services offered and sold that I was not really in a position uh, to be trying to sell, but you've got to experiment, you've got to try things. And, um, and, And so you can definitely see that dip Right over the first couple of years and and as, as things start to grow and take off a little bit,
0: so would you say that years two to five are kind of like the teenage years yeah
1: absolutely i, I definitely think so those are the those are the awkward adolescent middle school years like um middle you know school, and, early
0: high school
1: yeah right like your 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 body's growing faster than your mind is um, <laughs> you know right like and so everything's awkward. Uh, you know, your, your firm is growing faster than your capability to run the firm uh, is, you know? And so that's a little bit awkward. Uh, You're, you know, the same way that as a teenager, you're socializing with a lot of different people and you're trying to figure out how to socialize better, you're starting to, you know, pick up some more interest and awareness in the market. And so you're getting more prospects, you're getting referrals, you're getting people finding your website that's starting to pick up a little bit of web traffic. And you're really having to learn how to screen out bad fit clients versus good fit clients. And you're going to make a lot of mistakes with that. And so the same way that you've got, some people that you think are your friends that really aren't or, you know, that kind of thing, like in your firm, you've got some people that you think are good clients um until about six months in and then you find out they're really not. So, yeah, I, I think thinking of it as like your teenage years or your adolescent years, I think that's spot
0: on. Yeah, same deal pretty much. Well,
1: and then what's really interesting is a couple of pages after that um, is when you start to, you know, we're accountants, right? And so numbers with dollar signs are, are what we are going to focus on. And, and after that, you start to see those same trends uh, and, and those same breakdowns in terms of size of firm and duration of the firm uh, broken down in terms of revenue and profitability. And that's where things uh, really start to get interesting, I think, because you do see a pretty significant dip in those metrics between being solo, where you're getting 100% of the profit uh, versus, uh, you know, when you start adding those first few staff, and then up to, it looks like up to maybe about, um, you know, what I would start to consider a pretty big Firm, but maybe I guess in the big scheme of things, sort of like your your large local or or regional firm of you know twenty five to fifty staff, and that's when mm-hmm. you start to get back to the kind of profitability at the partner level that you were looking at as a as a solo. And and honestly, for from somebody looking at this chart, you know that that's firmly on the solo end of it. I, that scares the heck out of me, right? You know the idea of being at that precipice where. In order to grow, right, I've got to bring on staff, which is a whole other conversation, right, in terms of trying to find qualified, you know, good staff right now. Um, Is it even worth it, right? Is it even worth to commit myself for probably at least the next few years? Right to try to expand to try to bring on staff, knowing that I'm going to take a financial hit, knowing that I'm going to take a, an emotional hit. Right of I, now, I've got to deal with training staff. I've got to deal with shifting my mindset from being client centric to being staff centric. You know, it, it's a, it's, it, it's a, it's, it's kind of scary for me. Um, to be honest,
0: I hear you. It's horrifying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, like the the chart that you're referring to. Uh, is revenue by, by headcount basically. Mm -hmm. And it starts at solo at 119,000. It goes to small, which they define as two to five staff at 74,000, then small boutique, which is six to 10 staff at 79,000 and then large boutique, which is 11 to 25 at 90,000. So you don't really start to see that uptick until you're, you know, you're somewhere between 11 and 25 from a a revenue per headcount perspective. Mm -hmm. Then you get to regional, which is 26 to 50. That's 125, and then you see another dip. So it's really kind of interesting because it kind of follows that that tenure curve as well. And yeah, I mean, going from solo at 119,000 is small at 74,000 per headcount. I mean, that that's hard, and with that come all of the growing pains and putting systems and processes in place. And on average, you're also getting less competent, which is something that I was thinking about as you were you were talking there because when you're by yourself I mean theoretically you're you've had a whole bunch of experience you know what you know um because you know what you know you know who you want to bring on and what kind of services you want to try to offer right and you're you're totally confident and you don't need to have great documentation because it's all in your head and like whatever you're fine right but then as you start to bring people on inherently they're going to be less experienced than you they haven't been running your firm they don't know who your clients are as you, you, at that point you probably don't even have any documentation if you're lucky yeah. you do um so you have to work through all of those systems and as you're working through documentation as you're working through training that is not a revenue generating thing um it's not a business development thing it's not even a productivity or a production thing right you're not delivering any service to a client it's just working through all the minutia and all the administrative stuff to just try to figure yourself out the adolescent years doesn't work And it's really, I mean, it's really kind of fascinating. So I think, you know, one of the things that somebody can take away from this report, even if you're a solo or if you're somebody who's thinking about going into practice, I think this really helps to set the expectation of what you're going to experience or what you should think, what you should set yourself up to experience, basically.
1: I just wonder, you know, looking at numbers like this, and, and I don't know, um, I think this is all. These are all self-reported data. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I think they've got. You know, Carbon has a way that you can go in and, and self-report uh, these data, and so they're accumulating all of that. And then also, uh, so that's one part of it, right? The the other part of it is I don't know uh, the the sort of geographic scope here. Are we are only looking at uh, you know what what you know what geography are we looking at? All these different kinds of things. But uh, let's just assume for the moment that. Um, these numbers are roughly representative of what's actually happening uh, in, in small, medium, large firms across uh, at least the U.S., right? Then I one thing that really stands out to me is in a lot of these charts, you do see a a sort of uh, bifurcation or or um, what what statisticians would call a bimodal, right? And and so if you think about the distribution, I mean. right? If you think about the distribution, <laughs> you see two big humps, right? One on one end, one on the other yeah. end. Um, and and you've got this sort of gulf or gala, you know, gully right in the middle. And so when you think about this in the context of issues facing. A lot of small, especially small firms, right now, such as staffing issues, dealing with IRS, right, and how annoying that can be. I wonder if you know the, the sort of the long-term, medium to long-term takeaway here is almost this bifurcation of the industry into uh, a, a you know top one hundred firms, right, that are just big, hundred plus, you know, you know, dozens, if not, you know. It, you know, hundreds of partners and then just sort of small solo firms where you've got one, maybe a handful, uh, you know, one owner, maybe a handful of staff. And the it's the firms in the middle that are really going to sort of struggle the most, right? Because the, the incentives here, as I'm looking at it, right, the incentives are if you're – Focused on putting food on the table, right? Um, You know, trying to bring on other partners, trying to bring on other staff. uh, You you take a hit, right? You take a financial hit, you take Mm -hmm. an emotional hit, you take a psychological hit, and and for what? Because it looks like the the way to get out of that that dip in the middle is not to go from two or three staff to ten staff. It's to go from two or three staff to fifty staff. Right. And and that's a really big jump to me. But then again, you know, I'm I'm squarely in the solo side, so I'm not entirely sure what the economics of of growing a firm from two to three to more than that is. But yeah, it, it's really interesting uh, thinking about not just what we're seeing here in the data, but maybe what the long term implications of this is. Yeah, it
0: makes me wonder how that interplays with what's going on in the M&A world with firms right now and then having so many firm owners or CPAs really that are on the retirement age spectrum and then what that's going to mean. And then on the flip side of that, having a pipeline, which is basically non-existent. What's well, not, it's not hyperbolic. I understand yeah, that, well, but having a, well, it, 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 it feels non-existent to a yeah, lot of firm right. owners because, right. you know, it's hard to get access to that talent when, you know, big four and top 100 and all those folks have so many resources and can
1: well, you know, and, and speaking do. of our small groups, I mean, out of the, you know, dozen plus members of mine, I know at least three or four of them uh, have mentioned losing staff uh, to uh, just you know, bigger. Firms being able to afford to pay them more, uh, or yeah. being able to offer them benefits that uh, just aren't uh, either affordable or aren't even possible with a smaller firm, right? Because mm-hmm. you know, if you're running a firm of a handful of people, you can't put together the 401k matching and the group health insurance and all that kind of stuff, like a firm of 100 plus people can, right? And or or you know, it, even if you could, it might be too expensive for you to be able to do that. And so, what are you really competing on uh, in terms of in terms of a quality And and, uh, maintaining staff, and you know, if that's if that's the way it is. Now, granted, the the common uh, response back from that is we're offering a a different level of quality of life, right? Because you can go earn that kind of salary and benefits at those firms, but they're going to make you work a lot, not just harder, but uh, a lot more, right? Uh, for it, and so now you're talking the the 50, 60 hour work weeks during busy season, all that kind of stuff, as opposed to we'll keep things manageable. Uh, so you know, I I think there's always going to be that concern. You know, staff are going to leave for you know bigger, better uh, things elsewhere, greener pastures elsewhere. But at the same time, I just I, I wonder if you know, these kinds of trends are going to make it uh, even harder for the firms that are in the middle uh, to really manage that transition.
0: That's a great question. Yeah. So pivoting a little bit, the way that they define excellence inside of this report, they break it down into four pillars. So the one pillar is strategy, the next pillar is growth, the next pillar is management, and the next pillar is efficiency. So those are your four. And then they break it down into 12 competencies. So you've got strategy adoption, business strategy, innovation, marketing, sales, client management, Organization management, talent management, change management, operations management, business processes, and technology. So that's interesting. And then what struck me is that the average proficiency across practice excellence pillars, the average proficiency across the four pillars, and again, these are self-reported, but it's 525 Yeah. And efficiency is at 56.5, strategy to at 57, management to at 50.6, and growth is at 40, 45.8. And growth will be defined as your marketing, your sales. Um, I think innovations in that, mm-hmm. it, well, innovations between there and, and strategy, and then you got client management, which straddles that and um, whatever that pillar is, right. management as well. So it's really kind of interesting that on average, like I mean, an average being what an average is, but fifty two and a half just slowly better than the midpoint. Yeah, what do you what do you think about that? Yeah, I, so
1: this is this relates back to uh, another question that uh, if we haven't discussed yet, we probably should at some point. Which is just how do you know if your firm's doing well, right? Um, you know, and and That's
0: an essential <laughs> question.
1: Right, and and so of course, as accountants, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways we can look at that. Some of them are financial, um, but thinking about our own clients, right, is uh, you know we got to go beyond just the financial data as well and look at some of the non-financial data. And so you know we're talking about things like KPIs, and I know for a lot of accounting firms as well as just businesses in general, things like NPS scores and a lot of different ways of thinking about just you know do our stakeholders, whether that's your internal staff or your customers or uh whoever else is a stakeholder in your firm you know do they do they think we're doing a good job right uh do they do they believe in what we're doing um and, and that we're doing a good job at that you know the fact that all of these kind of average out to roughly fifty percent uh you know i i be, and and again keeping in mind that it's self reported. Mm-hmm. I think just based on the handful of conversations that I've had with firm owners and thinking about how I tend to respond to things like this, my typical response to these kinds of questions is like I'm doing all right. And and that's right and that and that's what I'm reading here in terms of these averages is like I think most firm owners think I'm doing all right. Um I could be better. there are lots of things I could be better at uh and if you talk to your typical firm owner, uh you know you ask them like, Why well, are you in terms of sales well i 'm not a great salesman, but I do okay. We bring in new clients right. How are you in terms of marketing well we 're not great marketers, but we do okay. We get our message out there i you know I think a lot of these things um again it being self reported now what would be interesting? is to compare, right, the self-reported data with something that is uh, being collected from a different set of stakeholders, right? So if you could take these sort of self-reported data and line them up with, say, NPS scores from those firms' customers, uh, or or maybe some sort of objective uh, metrics such as you know, whether it's revenue per client or monthly recurring revenue or however you want in terms of financial data uh, and, and square those things up. So yeah, I, that, that's pretty interesting to me that the average, and, and really you see this even broken down um, into a lot of these. Now, what's not surprising to me is uh, some of these proficiency scores that you would expect in a survey uh, run by a cloud-based practice management Software, right? Um, and so, if you if you look at marketing, for example, forty percent. Well, you know, I, I think most firm owners would say we're probably not very good at marketing. Um, but then technology is sixty eight percent, right? And so, I think most firm owners who use something who use a cloud based tool like Carbon to run their firms would say, yeah, we're pretty good on technology, right? Um, so there might be some selection bias going on here as well. Yeah,
0: it's interesting when you bring that up, um, because when I looked at the technology piece, I saw it at 68, which is tied with operations management, which is mm-hmm. not surprising for the highest proficiency. It's carbon,
1: right? It's, it's practice it's, management it's, software. Yeah, we're, it's, we're... <laughs> yeah,
0: it's shocking to me. But then again, no, I would imagine if you did a similar survey across the entire profession that, no. Otherwise, everybody's just kind of got their head buried in the sand, because from what I hear, yeah. uh, technology is one of the hardest things that that everybody's dealing with really
1: well then i think about some of the other communities of accountants that i'm in whether it's something like our small firm groups or whether it's a uh, facebook group of tax professionals or accountants or it's uh even tax twitter right uh you know one one of these other communities if you sort of asked them right to self-report along these different uh, criteria, I, I'm wondering if you would get just wildly different uh, sort of uh, sort of responses, because, yeah, I go into uh, a Facebook group for tax professionals and somebody, rec- you know, asked for a recommendation on bookkeeping software and 80 percent of the recommendations are QuickBooks desktop. Right. Because that's what <laughs> a lot of old school you know, Facebook based tax professionals are are using and are comfortable with, and they haven't come around to cloud-based software yet. And so they're probably not going to be, you know, evaluating themselves at, you know, relatively high in terms of technology. But then again, maybe on some of these other things, uh, you know, they would rate themselves higher than what these respondents t- tend to be. So I, I don't know. That, that could be right. interesting too.
0: Yeah. And then if, the way this is laid out is kind of like a DISC profile. If you've ever if you've ever seen one of those, which is a personality test. So on the other end of technology is innovation, kind of in that same in that same kind of realm. And that's one of the highest scores too. It's sixty percent, uh-huh. and I guess that that's subject to selection bias as well. Yeah, I would say, right? Because right. um, mm-hmm. I, I think that the profession largely has been struggling with innovation for, for quite some time. I don't. Mm-hmm. I don't know. There's a whole bunch of people who would say that the profession itself has been terribly <laughs> innovative. There are innovative firms for sure. Uh, so that's interesting. And then when you look at marketing, no surprise there. That's the lowest. What is surprising to me is the second lowest, which is 49% on the proficiency scale, which is client management.
1: Hmm.
0: What do you think about that?
1: Yeah. And, and so I, I, I'd want to dig into. Actually,
0: let, let me rephrase my question. Yeah. So what do you think about that within the context of the fact that there is selection bias in here from a cloud-based tool that's basically all about client management?
1: Yeah, right. Exactly. One, I I think a lot of accountants just suffer from imposter syndrome, serious imposter syndrome, and just say, uh, you know, it it, it could be a million things, right? Like they they could have just gotten fired by a client and said, well, I guess we're not very good at client management. It could be, uh, you know, you've got tax professionals in here who are saying we've got clients mad at us left and right because they're getting notices based on things that, you know, we actually did correctly, but IRS is going to be IRS. Uh, It could be things like, uh, using uh, a tool like carbon and, and you know some of the other ones are like this uh you know there are things like client tasks in there, and sometimes clients just aren't good with the the technology that we're imposing on them, whether it's portal technology or you know this sort of stuff and we've got another episode where we talked about uh you know how we track work and get clients' involvement uh in that in terms of uh you know client tasks and and getting documents from clients all that kind of stuff so you know, I, I don't know I think. I think a lot of firm owners are going to say, again, like, I think we're okay, but we could do better. And so they're going to plot themselves somewhere in the middle, right? You know, yeah, if I had to, if if somebody just asked me right now, um, you know, how do you think your firm is doing in terms of dealing with clients and keeping clients happy and in the loop and communicating with them and all that, I would say, eh, I'm doing okay. (laughs) Right.
0: One of the other things that's in here is they talk about practice excellence, by region, and the U.S., which they break down the four regions. You've got the U.S., Canada, U.K., and Australia. Um, Australia is the highest. Mm-hmm. U.K. second. USA third. Canada fourth. Is that surprising to you?
1: Well, and you know, and that's within a uh, range of maybe what four four percent. 3% so 5% so yeah so, like that. Yeah. so it, it's not a it's not a huge variation um but uh so i i will say this so uh we we mentioned going to our uh small firm groups i also uh the week after my small firm group uh so now a couple weeks ago had the pleasure of going to the ignition council uh meetup in chicago and so uh, ignition, which is the uh, billing and uh, I- engagement or agreement, whatever you want to call it in your firm. Uh, I call it an agreement. Most firms call it an, an engagement, but uh, the software that helps you manage that. So, proposal to agreement to actually billing uh, your clients and collecting payments from them. Uh, that is formerly practice ignition, now ignition. Uh, so, I was invited to be on their uh, sort of advisory council uh, of accountant users. And um, That of course is Australian based. You've got ignition, you've got zero that's based in Australia. I think carbon came out of Australia, right? I think you've got a lot of accounting innovation happening right in, in Australia. And I, I, I'm, Really interested uh, in you know how different countries are thinking about this from a couple different perspectives. One, of course, is cultural, but then the other one is just in terms of since most accountants are having to deal with taxes for their clients, right? Like how the different tax administrations uh, in those countries affects this as well. And so I don't really know anything about the Australian tax system. I don't know anything about the British or even the Canadian one. I just know U.S. But um, I wonder how much of that. Factors in there, and so what you're really seeing, sort of driving this practice excellence, um, especially when it comes to Australia, is management. Uh, tends to they they rate pretty pretty highly, uh, and then along with efficiency. Um, strategy, they rate themselves a little bit lower growth. They rate themselves uh, relatively a little bit lower, but management and efficiency are pretty high. And I, I would, I would say based on, you know, the kind of software that we've seen coming out of Australia over the last decade or so, and how that started to make serious headway in the U S market, at least, um, that, you know, they're doing something, there's something in the water over there in Australia, as far yeah, as, uh, as far as accounting, um, and accountants, uh, go over there.
0: Moving forward a little bit. So the most common technology, 86% said cloud accounting, 85% said cloud email, which is surprising. Like what are the other 15% using for email? Right. (laughs) I I, I would like to, somebody send us a message on Twitter and tell us what a non-cloud email is. Um, 70% document management, 54% practice management. What's interesting to me is that only 35% are using a CRM and 11% using business intelligence. So yeah. think about it like a dashboarding analytics mm-hmm. type of tool like a power b i or a giraffe or um Damn. what's the one that you are using jeremy there first dramatic... uh, causal 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 is, yeah is something like that, that. yeah mm-hmm. right.
1: it, and and we we have some people in within our uh, broader sort of, especially social media circle, uh, who talk a lot about CRMs. Uh, for example, I know Brandon Hall, right? Uh, he's mm-hmm. got, he's got a tweet that uh, sort of is on one of those auto retweet <laughs> things that I see pop up in my feed on on Twitter every now and then um, about how uh, you know more firms need to be having CRMs. That's one of the first things that he realized that he really needed in his firm. There, there's a couple that I I don't really have a good one. I've got a, a process that I use of trying to keep track of contacts and that kind of thing. And a lot of that happens inside of carbon, um, even though it's not really a CRM. Uh, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I, I think that's probably, uh, a, a, a big knock on our, uh, profession is yeah. that we don't think we, we think in terms of, you know, the, the customer, and that's another thing, right. Um, Is, you know, we talk about them as clients. And so we just kind of assume that they come to us, we do work for them, and then they're gone. And we hope they show back up next year, or we don't hope (laughs) they show up again next year, depending on how that went. But we don't really do anything to manage the relationship, we just kind of either take it for granted that they'll come back when they need us, uh, or that they, that we didn't really want them anyway, and they'll go find somebody else. We we're not really doing much. um, And and it's not really part of the conversation in our profession about how do we nurture those relationships? How do we improve on those relationships? How do we manage those relationships? So the CRM part, I mean, 35% feels high uh, to me, right? You know, is that, is that, is that really a third of firms that are setting up something like, uh, you know, whatever the CRM software out there is, you know, what is it, a pipe drive Salesforce, something along these lines that HubSpot. will actually, yeah. yeah, HubSpot, right? Like actually help them manage, uh, you know, and keep track of those relationships. And, you know, for the ones that are using it, what does that look like? Is that setting up automated happy birthday emails or, you know, <laughs> automated, Hey, it's tax time again. So, you know, come drop off your stuff and, and we'll catch up kind of emails, or is that really? Diving into, you know, managing and and uh, running those relationships, the 11% on business intelligence, I that that's super interesting uh, to me, I think part of that is, you know, back to the conversation we've had a bunch of times is cast yeah. thinking about the higher end of CAS, because to most firms, CAS is still just bookkeeping, plus maybe some payroll, maybe some ARAP, but getting into higher order kind of advisory work, things like dashboarding and forecasting, it's just not there yep. yet. And if it is there, it's it's manual spreadsheets, right? It's it's you know bespoke uh, calculations and spreadsheets that we're building for clients. It's not using off-the-shelf software that is set up uh, to actually do that kind of work for us.
0: Yeah. It seems like there's a huge opportunity there as it pertains to the cast and higher fees and higher value services for sure. But on the CRM perspective, we're one of the ones that uses it. And we use HubSpot. And a couple of hours before we got on, on this recording, I was talking to my salesperson about HubSpot and our subscription levels and how are you util- utilizing it and things like that. He would tell you that, um, it's an invaluable tool, um, you know, the way that we look at it, it's more of a data tool for uh, revenue generation, more so than anything. There is some relationship management stuff that that we layer onto that. A really good example would be tracking meeting. So the last time that we met with a client, if uh, we haven't met with a client in some period of time, I send them an email say, Hey, here's a meeting link. Let's get let's get on a meeting. So that gets into the customer relationship management thing. Uh, certainly, there's a lot of opportunity there that you can build in.
1: I think that right there is a fantastic example, right? Just tracking meetings. I, I think most firms uh, you know, tracking client meetings is a Word document per client that, you know, is just sort of a, a running notepad of yeah. here, here's what here's everything uh, that we that we've talked about. And um, I, I know I've had that before. Right. And uh, I, I've even built some automations like through Zapier where we'll add a new heading into a Google Doc when a client schedules a certain kind of meeting with me in Calendly. And I've got some clients where I've got half a dozen of those and no notes because I just didn't think to open the document and actually you know, take any notes um, that way during the call. And uh, it, you know, keeping track of those meetings, I think is a huge one. And you're absolutely right. It's not just passively waiting for the client to schedule a meeting with us when they've got an issue but being proactive and saying hey we haven't heard from this particular client or customer for six months let's reach out to them and see how they're doing because they're a business client of ours and we need to know if their business is doing okay or not
0: yeah for sure and and by the way quickbooks is a crm if you don't have a crm if you've never used a crm go and Go and take a demo and see what's possible. That's, I mean, that's all that I would say about that. It'll, it'll definitely open your eyes.
1: And now you've got Mailchimp, right? That's that's part of that as well. So you could you could Mailchimp, is- you could start doing a little bit of uh, you know email marketing and and build you some mm-hmm. landing pages and stuff like that too, if you mm-hmm. want. to Just go crazy, right? Go buck yeah. wild on your marketing there.
0: Yeah, I'll tell you that we layer Mailchimp onto QBO to do our NPS scores. Yeah, so we send the we send the NPS through Mailchimp, but it's based on whoever we've had revenue from in the last thirty eight. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So Interesting. that integration's been cool. So
1: yeah, it might be something we need to talk about, right? Is that is that QBO Mailchimp uh, integration because it's something that I've not looked into, and mm-hmm. and I, there might be something missing there that I haven't mm-hmm. figured out yet.
0: So most common reporting metrics tracked sixty eight percent. Monthly recurring revenue, 48% average revenue per client, 42% jobs completed by staff. Interesting here on the very low end, almost at the bottom, net promoter score 7%. Yeah. I think with those top
1: three scores, uh, to me, that's really interesting because that looks like three of the different dominant business models that we've got going on Mm -hmm. in the industry right now is you're, you're either setting up sort of MRR, you know, subscription model uh, business Uh, you've got uh, either, either sort of a, maybe you're billing them annually, right? Like for a tax return. And so it's average revenue per client, or um, you're, you're just doing project based sort of revenue. Uh, and, and so that's jobs completed by staff, but that's really interesting.
0: All right, so Jeremy, the top 10 activities with the strongest impact on practice, practice excellence. Number one, OKRs, so objectives and key results. Number two, monthly recurring revenue, which is number one on that most common reporting metric, so that's interesting. Number three is the target market selection, otherwise known as a NIT, which is not on there. Number four is client lifetime value, so, lifetime value is on that list that comes in 12%. And then you got number five is 360 performance evaluation. I don't see that anywhere. So, that's fairly rare as well. NPS scores is number, number six. And NPS scores only be done apparently by 7% of firms. <laughs> so, that's interesting. Ideal client profile, which is like a persona. So, if you haven't done a like a buyer persona, like what are the demographics, psychographics, all that, all that sort of stuff. Super valuable um, exercise for sure. But that's, that's not on the list, of the most common, most common things. Emotional IQ test, that's not on there either. And Jackie Meyer on our last episode talked about that mm-hmm. a little bit with disc profiles and using crystal nodes and things like that. That's something that right. we do inside of our firm as well. Standardized staff onboarding, also interesting. And then number 10, email response time. And that's something that we use in our firm as well. So those are the top 10 predictors based on this survey of practice. Excellent. I'm wondering which ones stand out for you. Which ones do you utilize out of, out of all that?
1: Okay. Ours is one of those things that, um, once or twice a year, I will say, I'm going to, I'm going to really do this. Uh, and then I don't, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but, uh, but uh and 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 to an extent kpis, I mean I've got some some uh, things I look at inside of my firm that are reported elsewhere probably relying too much on the financial ones, but, um, but a couple of non-financial ones that I will pull out of ignition, for example, things like that. Um, MRR of course is, uh, you know, a big one because again, I'm a solo firm, right. And so whatever the firm's net is, is my take home. (laughs) And so, uh, that's a, that's an important one, uh, to me. And then, uh, niche, right. That, that's a, that's a huge one for me because, uh, trying to, figure out what that is, right? Um, Always. And uh, it's especially, uh, you mentioned earlier, the sort of economic uh, situation that we're in or about to be in or transitioning into, we're still not entirely sure, right? But, um, you know, whenever the economic winds are changing, you've got to start asking whether it's necessary to pivot or not. And so that's an important uh, one as well. Client lifetime value. This is actually one that because I work with some marketing and advertising agencies, and I know you do too, that is one that uh, my clients um, and customers are super interested in and it's one that i would be a lot more uh interested in and concerned with if i had a way to measure it set up and so part of that yeah, is really i need hard. to build one part of that is i just wish ignition would calculate that for me I, I wish it would uh be built into that and that's one of that's one of the things that i told them about a lot like you guys have all of my sales data. You should be able to tell me what my, uh, what my customer's LTV is, but, but yeah. And then NPS, this is something that I've played around with. There's a couple of, uh, free tools, I think online. Uh, I think it's like delightful or something like that, that, Hmm. um, I've used before, uh, that might not be the. Right name of it, but um, it's a way to get uh, it's that simple and you know if you 've ever bought anything online you've seen it a million times the the simple like one to ten how would you how would you rate us um, sort of question and then a comment box right and, and I've done that a few times. Um, I used to send one out, one out every time I onboarded uh, a new client. And, uh, and then I just kind of stopped because that was happening so infrequently at that stage in my business that I didn't really see the value. Um, but now that I know where I could probably fit that in more frequently, um, but then you run the risk of, am I asking them too much, right? You know, am I, am, Are they just answering this because I've asked them a million times? Are they ignoring it because I've asked them a million times? Um, yeah, so I mean, there, there's several here that if you're looking for a way to ask that question that I asked a little bit earlier, right? Do it, how, am I doing a good job? Right? Is my firm doing a good job? You got a lot of options here to quantify that for yourself.
0: Yeah, for sure. All these things are measurable. Yeah, uh, with you know, with the right tools and the right data. So it's just being intentional about how you're gathering data in your firm and how you're measuring it and how you're, you know, what you're doing with it. How often are you looking at it and how often are you making, making decisions based on it and moving your firm forward? It's not really surprising to me that this is the list of the 10 things that predict practice X one.
1: Right. Absolutely.
0: Um, and it also, I think, correlates with the things that most firms are struggling with, like NPS score being at number six and then customer relationship being the second lowest, um, the second most competency and only having 7% of firms track it i mean those, those things go together it, it makes it makes total sense to me
1: it's fairly you know it's relatively low hanging fruit right especially yeah. and, and this is this is the thing is that you know if if you're working with a relatively tight uh small client roster like i do yeah some of these um you know more statistical kind of based approaches might not be the the best way um, to to do it right, like a like a thirty minute conversation with a couple of important clients might get me a lot yep. further in terms of understanding whether I'm doing a good job than sending out an NPS to all fifty of my clients, right? But if well, you're- well, that's
0: basically a three hundred and sixty performance evaluation, right? Which is right, five. right, yeah, right. number five on that list, yeah.
1: And and so, it, but if you're if you're running a firm where you do eight hundred, twelve hundred tax returns a year, right? Um, then NPS would probably be a, a great scalable mm-hmm. option. Um inside of your firm.
0: Yeah. Yep. Okay. So we've gone through the what and the so what now what. So Jeremy, what are you I know you're probably like me and most other firm owners. We're in November. We're thinking about 2023 based on your meeting that you've had with your small firm group and based on, you know, going through this the survey data and just based on just doing your own self analysis of where you are in your firm. What are you thinking about for twenty twenty three and how you gonna move your business forward?
1: Yeah, so two big things between now and tax season is what we're talking about uh, just then. So one, Mm -hmm. I I need a better way of just assessing where my... Uh, clients, you know, customers, whatever we're calling them, um, wh- you know where they're at, right? And and where I stand uh, in relation to them. And so, getting more strategic and more intentional about that. And then, along with that, the second thing is I've got some uh, legacy clients. When I say legacy, you know, I'm talking about three, four yeah. five years ago. But I've got some legacy clients. Um, do I still want to work with them? If so. Uh, you know, is the billing, is the is the price for them appropriate? Is the work that I'm doing for them appropriate? Uh, the ones that are sort of in the middle that I added, you know, one to two years ago, probably need to do a similar thing, maybe after tax season, um, but definitely within the next year or so need to get updated with them in terms of uh, services and pricing. And then the ones that are uh, new within the the last year, or so again, a, a similar process as far as, you know, whether we want to keep working together after uh, tax season. So I think that's really the, the key thing is just seeing where I stand um, with, with my clients because yeah, a couple years of, of COVID just led to some rapid growth and uh, some, some ex-clients sort of took care of themselves. Um, some I had to put a foot down, uh, but that doesn't mean that all of the uh, client issues are, are strained out. There's still a few there that I probably need to work on.
0: Yeah. So are you looking to implement like an NPS type deal?
1: Maybe, Um, you know, again, I, I, I don't, I'm not sure if that's, if more of a, of a statistical approach is appropriate for the the size of my client roster. But then again, uh, you know, being a solo firm owner, I'm not sure if, is trying to reach out for 50 different half hour catch up conversations is appropriate either. So I don't know. It might be a mix, might be some sort of sort of mix of uh, maybe not necessarily just as simple as an NPS, maybe a little bit more than that, maybe a few questions. Um, And then if the responses are not where I would expect them to be or want them to be, maybe reaching out directly after that.
0: Yep, I get that. So from our perspective, uh, we have a super bloated tech stack, and <laughs> I am in I am in cost cutting mode at at the moment, and that uh, that has been an eye opener for sure. Like what that's can we do? Yeah, like the same the same advice we give our clients, that we never take ourselves that sort yeah. of thing. That's Great. where I'm at. <laughs> so basically, just going to the tech stack, cutting what we can, and uh, that's been an eye opening. That's been an eye opening exercise for one. The other thing that we that we struggle with. And it was on my radar, but we did an internal team training last week that kind of evolved into the team telling me we need better documentation. We need better documentation of a whole bunch of processes. And it needs to be more accessible. It needs to be more organized. And I heard that absolutely positively loud and clear. So we're gonna go through a pretty, a pretty hefty process to document a lot of a lot of the stuff that we do and, and do for clients. And I think that that's gonna have a really meaningful impact on our On our business certainly as we grow and grow the team and bring on new teammates and that sort of thing so those are really the two big things that we're working on interesting um yeah i I go back and
1: forth because i've got a lot of things documented in terms of a recorded loom video for it or maybe a scribe you know walk through you know step based walkthrough of it um and and those are linked out of carbon you know in in terms of work but it's not really like housed anywhere it's not in a central sort of location of i need to do this thing and it's not assigned to me right now as work so i don't really know how to you know get at where to figure out how to do that so that's a good idea as well
0: yeah and that got started because i went back and reread traction for the second time mm. right Tra- traction always...
1: will really make you rereading traction we... will really make you take a step back and, and think about your business
0: sure will which is yeah. what it did and that so i got the documentation thing on my radar and then we you know we had, like i said we had an unrelated team training basically that evolved into. This is what we needed to do. And loud and clear. Heard that. So that's where we're at. Well, Jeremy, we are bumping up against yep. time. This has been an interesting conversation. Um it was really kind of fun to get to walk through this, uh walk through this carbon report with you. So definitely appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh what are our key takeaways for today, you think?
1: So I think one is we you know don't don't exist in a silo. Um, if, whether you're a firm owner or you're thinking about becoming a firm owner, or you, even if you're just in leadership in your firm, you, you're not necessarily an owner, but in leadership, is you know be part of communities, um, be part of groups of other accountants and and peers, uh, whether that's something. Formal, like through the ASCPA, or something informal, like realize, or even just jump onto Tax Twitter um, if you haven't already, mm-hmm. and and just start reaching out and you know making some connections with other firm owners, and uh, and you know don't feel like you're doing this alone. Don't don't be reinventing the
0: wheel. Yeah, absolutely. And take a look at the Carbon Report too, and go through there and see how it resonates with you. Um, absolutely, there's a lot in there to unpack for sure. Yeah. Well, Jeremy, absolutely. appreciate the time today. This has been another episode of the CPA Advisory Show. Thanks for listening, and we will see you next time. Hey, it's Jeremy. Thanks for listening to the CPA Advisory Show. If you
1: enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, leave a rating, and write us a review. We'll probably read your review on the air, too. To catch all the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at CPA Advisory Show. If you have a topic or guest you'd like to hear on the show, let us know by emailing host at com. Thanks again.